Welcome back to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. Did you miss us? I hope that you did. I know it's been a long time. I've got a little bit of an explanation for you, but I'm going to save that for the end of the episode, let you know what's going on and looking into the future of the For the Church podcast. But it's a mailbag episode today. We know you like those. So we're going to be looking at some questions from Twitter. And in our next episode, we're going to do a part two where we look at some questions from Facebook. Um, Jeff is right out of the gate with a question on social media. (laughs) Speaking of mailbag, Twitter and Facebook, Jeff wants to know, what's an appropriate pastoral response when you witness your church members acting a fool on social media? Um, gosh, who, who hasn't been there (laughs) seeing church members act a fool? Actually, um, I should mention because this question gives me an opportunity to brag on um, some of my own church folks. I'm, I'm not a pastor, but I, I direct a, a residency program at, at my church, Liberty Baptist Church, called the Pastoral Training Center. And over the last four years or so, I cannot think of a time when I've been embarrassed uh, by any of the residents' tweets or, or Facebook updates. Now, I may not agree with something they've posted, uh, their opinion on something, but uh, there's never been anything that's made me go, oh, you know, that's like cringe, or I got to talk to them about, about that, uh, which is pretty remarkable given that these are mostly young men, and not just young men, but uh, young men sort of in the, in the throes of theological education and uh, they're in the they're in the prime demographic for being idiots on online, <laughs> and uh, and they don't act like idiots online. So I just want to brag on those guys. If uh, any of you guys, if you're listening, I'm proud of you. You know, thanks for uh, not acting a fool on social media. But Jeff wants to know what should the pastor do when they see church members acting a fool on social media. Well, Jeff, the first thing I think is to be really honest with yourself about whether the person is really acting like a fool or they're just saying things you disagree with. This is sort of a a, a gut check. Like, is it something that, uh, is it a political opinion? Is it some kind of cultural viewpoint? Is it something that isn't sinful? It's just you don't like it or you don't agree with it. Uh, that's one thing. And I think you just have got to suck that up. You just have to remember that your your church is full of people with different views and different perspectives and different life experiences. And they're not, there's not going to be a uniformity there. And they're not always going to agree with you on, on every, every step of the way. So make sure before, you know, you, you, you think of this as a pastoral issue or something in, in, you know, requiring a pastoral response that it's not just something that makes you uncomfortable or that you disagree with, right? So setting that aside, say somebody really is being divisive, they really are acting sinfully, they're saying things that are worldly, um, they're constantly engaging in, in arguments with people just on and on and on, they're, they're, they've adopted a kind of worldly approach, maybe even to spiritual issues. That's one of the things that I think happens so subtly on social media now is because of our firm convictions, because of our hardline views on things that the Bible is very clear on even, um, 
we sometimes excuse a worldly uh, anger or a worldly wrath or a worldly argumentativeness, not just um, with our brothers and sisters, but with lost people. And not only is that just, you know, not often the way people change their minds, it's very rare to say, you know what? Uh, a guy cursed me out on on Facebook, and uh, I think he made some good points. <laughs> or, you know, somebody really insulted me up and down, and I'm really going to change my view. So not only does it, you know, serve more as a kind of fleshly catharsis sometimes to vent, right? The, you know, and, and the scriptures tell us that a fool gives vent to their anger. And we know that the when the Holy Spirit takes a residence in our lives, that one of the you know, part of the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears in our lives is is self-control and gentleness. So if you see someone who, even about things that are biblical and true, is acting in unbiblical ways, not only should we uh, express to them that it's not likely to commend their own view, if they're trying to convince people, maybe they're not trying to convince people, they're just trying to vent and kind of air their grievances. But is that a Christian perspective? Um, you you may, as a pastor, take them aside. Don't shame them publicly. I probably wouldn't make the comment on their Facebook feed or you know in you know in their Twitter uh, you know mentions. I would do it personally, directly, gently, and ask them questions. What is it you're trying to accomplish with this approach? Because it seems particularly caustic. It seems argumentative, and it doesn't seem in keeping with the fruit of the spirit. Can you help me understand? what your goal is? Are you seeing results <laughs> in that in that goal? Are people changing their mind because of um, you know you know because of this approach? And, and then on top of that, ask them if if they're you know someone who is a church member, then they're someone who has made a profession of faith, they claim to follow Jesus. How is this keeping with the ethic of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit? That is sort of the uh, the appropriate pastoral response, I think. Um, is is not sort of putting them on blast. It's not engaging in the um, you know the foolishness, but being um, you know personal, direct, gentle, and maybe asking some questions to kind of you know so that they don't feel too too attacked or too put on the spot. Um, you know, Paul gives some good counsel of of course in First Timothy chapter five. Um, you know, certainly social media wasn't around back then, but um, maybe it, it could apply to these sort of pastoral responses to people who are acting in these sort of socially, um, you know, sinful and social ways. Um, Paul says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So I think I take Paul to mean there that, you know, we don't need to be harsh uh, when some, you know, if uh, if you're a pastor and the person who's acting a fool is older than you, encourage him, ask him to kind of measure his uh, actions uh, against the scriptures, appeal to him that way. Um, with younger men, you know, don't just squash them. Don't just, you know, yell at them and crush them. Uh, encourage them as brothers, come alongside them, uh, encourage them to see things differently. Um, that I think is is probably the best pastoral response. Uh, okay, Coulter, uh, also on Twitter here, has some questions about pastoral compensation. Not a controversial topic at all. 
he doesn't ask the question. He just simply says, could you talk about pastoral compensation and then some keys to know when to move on and when to stay? So I'm going to do some interpretive work here, read between the lines. I think it's basically, how do I know if I'm getting paid too little (laughs) and I'm getting paid so little that I should look for another opportunity? Um, This is a very sticky issue for a lot of pastors and a lot of churches. Sometimes there's some shame and guilt involved because you will hear those who say, hey, you know what? Paul didn't take a salary. Um, you should just expect the Lord to provide. You shouldn't pastor a church out of out of the you know desire for money and so on and so forth. You know what? Agree with all of that. Many times, though, I think this advice isn't really drawn from truly biblical concerns. It's, it's sort of um, sentimentalizing or spiritualizing even some descriptive accounts. So just because Paul did not take income from the church, although I think there were circumstantial times where they took up a collection to, you know, afford uh, some, you know, some of his missionary travels or, or uh, benevolence needs and things like that. But in general, he was a uh, a tent maker. He was someone who, who uh, derived his income outside the income or the giving of, of the church. Uh, the fact that Paul did that does not create a prescription for pastors. And in fact, in that very same passage I quoted earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 5, in the previous question, Paul later down the chapter um, addresses this as well. So in verses 17 and 18, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So I think what Paul is trying to say is we should take care in in all kinds of ways, but including financial, those who serve us in the gospel, those who preach and teach, he says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, should be considered worthy of double honor. I've been a pastor who is concerned about my ability to pay the bills. I'm currently not a pastor, but I am the chair of the personnel committee at my church. And having been in, in a position where I've thought, gosh, how do I talk to them about, you know, I, I might, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling here. And I've made it my mission um, to make sure that um, not just our pastors, but our staff as well, that they have as few worries as possible. And that there, we have an open line of communication. I think it's the responsibility of the church to make sure that the pastor is is free from this concern. It doesn't mean that you're trying to make him rich. It, it doesn't mean that you're, uh, I don't think the double honor means that uh, there's an extravagance here or, or, or luxury here. Uh, but I do think we should be seeking to alleviate those sorts of burdens so that um, we set our pastor and his family free from the kind of anxieties and and worries that would distract him from faithful gospel ministry. I, I don't want my pastor to have on top of everything else he is carrying and serving the church well to wonder about how he's going to feed his family or pay for his insurance and, and all those sorts of things. So it's the church's responsibility. I know, Coulter, this wasn't your question, but I just want to speak to those who are not pastors right now who may think a certain way about this subject matter. It's the church's responsibility and, and, and lay leaders in the church, the congregation's responsibility to say, we want to pay our pastor as much as we can afford in such a way that he is set free from this burden on top of 
his work in serving us. Uh, I think that's the principle that's laid out in the scriptures. If a pastor has a particular conviction about not getting paid, good on them. That That's a conscience issue. If they say, I don't want to take a salary. When I was a church planter, I did not take a salary from my church. That was an intentional thing. The church didn't have a lot of money, <laughs> uh, but I did not go in gunning for a salary. I pastored that church for free, and that was sort of uh, you know part of the intention of making sure that um, our church could be as generous as possible missionally and so on and so forth. But that was a conscience issue. That wasn't to me, you know, biblical conviction about, you know, every position that I would ever take or that everyone else should have that particular position. And I think it's unfair and unbiblical when we do that. So what do you do if you're the pastor? How do you decide, gosh, should I move on? Is Am I being greedy to care about this? And the answer is no. You're call is to care for your family. You know, if you're a husband, Coulter, if you're uh, a father, taking care of your family is um, vitally important. The bride is Christ's. Uh, You take care of your bride and Jesus will take care of his. You are stewarded as an under shepherd, you know, to feed and care for that flock. But you can always get another flock, not to speak crassly about it. You can always get a, you know, another flock. You, you cannot get another wife, <laughs> or you should not. Um, and so if you have a reasonable concern, I'm not saying like, gosh, I really would, would prefer the Lexus to the Toyota or the, you know, the, the, the Hyundai or whatever. I'm not talking about like you're desiring luxury, and I, and, and I don't have any indication that, that that's what's behind this concern. But I know a lot of pastors, they're just, they're struggling to pay their bills. And the churches have the sort of mentality of um, we're going to pay you as little um, as we can get away with to keep you honest or to make sure you're really in it for the ministry. I think that that's a sinful attitude and a lot of pastors are struggling and then they feel guilty when they um, think that they should probably leave or they're thinking about leaving because they think maybe I'm not being faithful or maybe I'm not really in it for the ministry. And um, I, I just think try to spiritualize what is a genuine concern. The scriptures call us to care for our families, to provide for our families. And in fact, we're seen as uh, unbelievers if we don't do that. So it's a genuine concern. Here's the sort of litmus test, brother, that I would give you. And it's it's really a, a matter of discernment. How do I know when to move on and when to stay? The litmus test is this. When you can tell it's part of the culture of the church not to care about your ability to provide from your, you know, for your family, then it's maybe time to think about leaving. When you can tell it's part of the culture not to care. Now, if you're bringing up these concerns and the church is saying, man, we really want to help you. We just can't afford it. That's a different thing. And that doesn't mean that you should stay because if they can't afford it, they can't afford it. But uh, maybe it's time to kind of rethink the the job situation. Maybe you should be bivocational. Maybe the church should, uh, acknowledging that, free you up to pursue a side hustle, right? Um, or some other ways to bring in income. If the church cannot afford to pay you in such a way that you can provide for your family, but they have a very hard line on your wife uh, staying at home, maybe they need to ease up on that a little bit and allow your wife to um, pursue some income opportunities. Uh, as well. But if it's the, in the culture of the church, not that like they're ignorant of this and when you bring it to their attention, oh man, they really want to help you. But you can just tell it's part of the culture not to care. That's probably a pretty good indication 
that you should consider um, leaving if you genuinely cannot provide for your family. It's it's created such a burden that it's distracting and detracting from your ability to faithfully carry out gospel ministry. So again, it's not that you can't afford the Lexus. It's that you can't afford to keep the lights on. You can't afford to pay your bills. It's a burden that the church should um, seek to remove from you, and they have no desire to do that. That's, I think, kind of the uh, litmus test. All right, Destry asks, any helpful tips or advice on changing ministries in a church? For example, moving from Sunday school classes to groups, small groups. Uh, Helpful tips or advice on changing ministries in the church? Well, it depends on how long, Destry, that the existing ministry has been there. It depends on um, how long the leaders of those particular ministries have been there. The longer settled in a particular ministry has been, probably the longer the the off-ramp ought to be. Uh, One of the first steps is to make sure that you have other leaders on board, uh, that you're not just, you know, if you're the lead pastor or senior pastor, that you're not flying solo (laughs) in uh, in this practice, but that you've taken the time to convince others of the need for the transition that they're on board, not reluctantly, but they see the value. Gosh, we, we should move to groups away from Sunday school because X, Y, and Z. And we see the value in that now. We understand the mentality, the logic of it. We see the advantage of that. And so we're on board. And now you've got some consensus. And then very patiently uh, begin to work through those transitions. It could be that you don't dismantle the whole thing at once. This is sort of a, not a cliche, but I guess a broad brush, I guess I would call it a broad brush. But in general, older members change more slowly or are more reluctant to change. It could be that you start with the younger Sunday school classes and begin to move sort of in a staggered way up towards the older. You know, they, they hear the, the Jaws theme as you're working through this, you know, it's coming for them. Uh, but you're moving slowly and you're you're conducting yourself in a pastoral way to be as patient as as possible. I would recommend if it doesn't sound a little too you know self-serving, um, uh, pick up my book, <laughs> The Gospel Driven Church. In Gospel Driven Church, uh, I have a whole section. I, actually, the whole book is on leading substantive church change. Uh, not specifically on this issue. It's it's more about moving from attractional to gospel-centered. But there's a whole section, there's a whole chapter on leading change in a gracious way. And it works through some of the practical aspects of things like this, uh, moving from Sunday school to groups or phasing out outdated programs and, and other ministries. Uh, so you might find that helpful, uh, Destry, if you're interested in that. Gospel-driven church. All right, Josh wants to know, is it a good idea to let members vote on changes proposed in the church? For instance, canceling the Sunday night service. Uh, This is another way to ask. This is still Josh. Another way to ask, is the congregational vote an out-of-date and divisive practice? Well, this question is a little more complicated than it seems on the surface, Josh. And, and, And here's the answer that I'm going to give you. And I hope, you know, you can tease out something that's helpful to you. In my answer, Um, I'm going to take the second part of your question first. Is the congregational vote an out-of-date 
and divisive practice. I'm going to say no. As a good Baptist, <laughs> uh, I, I am a congregationalist. I know there are different flavors of congregationalism, and I think this maybe speaks to really the gist of your question. Uh, there are different flavors of congregationalism, uh, even within uh, Baptist ranks, even within Southern Baptist um, churches, how congregationalism is applied. Uh, but in general, just to kind of pan out for a little bit here, um, congregationalism uh, is founded on the idea or derived from the idea that the congregation holds the keys that Christ talks about uh, in his ministry, um, and that to carry out the work of discipline that is necessary, commanded by Jesus and applied and, and further elaborated on, um, most especially in Paul's teaching, that to carry out the, the necessary work of church discipline, maintaining the purity and credible witness of the church, and then, of course, just the dynamic of authority and accountability, the scriptures locate um, that discipline, function, authority, accountability, and place the keys in the hands of the congregation. of the And, and this is why church membership is so important. Again, there's a variety of flavors of, of how this is applied and conducted, uh, what, you know, how you uh, bring in members and, 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 and that sort of thing. But the, the um, idea of church membership, which some are increasingly opposed to, um, speaks to, for instance, Jesus saying when someone is in sin and you're going to bring them before the church, and if the church decides that they are unrepentant and they don't have a credible profession of faith, you got to put them outside the church. You got to have an idea of who's inside and who's outside. What does it mean to put somebody outside if you don't know who's inside? And who is the church? Who's deciding? Just everybody who showed up that day, right? Or is it people who have a credible profession of faith that have somehow aligned themselves with that local embassy of the kingdom of God? Those are the key holders, the membership. So again, we don't have to be very staunch or dogmatic about the fine details of how membership is conducted or how you bring in members, but the concept is a very biblical one, and the authority of that congregation is a very biblical one. Therefore, we're getting closer to the idea of the congregational vote. Here's where things get a little tricky. So the first part of your question, Josh, is, is it a good idea to let members vote on changes proposed in the church? For instance, canceling Sunday night services. The answer is it depends on the church and, and, and the flavor of congregationalism. So it is a good idea to let church members vote, but church by church, context by context, what they vote on may be different. What do we see in the scriptures in terms of a congregational vote. Is congregational voting, first of all, itself a biblical concept? Maybe you can buy, okay, there are church members, but the idea of them wielding authority in some way or even voting in some way, is that a biblical concept? Well, um, we're, we're having to infer from a variety of texts, and I'll, I'll work through just a couple of them for you. For, so, for instance, in Acts chapter 6, you have the establishment of the diaconate, and it says that, that um, these folks, these deacons, are chosen by the church. So who is the church? Well, there's got to be an idea of who's inside. So it's members. It's, just, it's the church members. They're somehow deciding amongst themselves, choosing amongst themselves, led, of course, uh, by the, um, the apostolic authority, but they're choosing among themselves those to serve to wait tables, so to speak. They're choosing their own deacons. 
well, how do you do this without some measure of discussion, some measure of organization, and probably some measure of voting? Hey, I think Fred ought to be a deacon. I don't know, Fred, you know, when we look at the qualifications, Fred, so there's a, uh, an administering of, of uh, the idea of qualification. There's the deciding who passes, you know, muster with the congregation. And we don't show them going yay or nay or <laughs> secret ballot or anything like that. Uh, but the fact that the church is producing from amongst themselves candidates or people to serve in, this, in these roles does lend some credence to the idea of voting. Uh, there are other texts, of course, in you know throughout Acts, in which the church decides, it says, to do something. Right, the church decides to send uh, certain you know people on 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 mission to certain places. So, how do you decide to do those things without some measure of you know tallying, quantifying? The majority of these people think this is a great idea. Perhaps there are some you know dissenters, but the majority outweighs them. You 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 have the idea of voting there. And then Paul alludes to, this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul um, uses the phrase punishment by majority, punishment by majority. And so that speaks to a subset of the congregation, the, the predominant subset, the majority subset of membership weighing in on a discipline issue, which I think lends credence again to the voting uh, concept. So, um, again, we don't have a, a direct text that shows people yay and, and, and naying. We don't have a direct text of secret ballot, that sort of thing. But we do have these decision texts. We have these texts that refer to majority and, you know, choosing texts that speak to that, uh, a further elaboration on the authority of the congregation that shows, I think, um, a reasonable foundation for voting. Now, what do they vote on? And this is where a lot of congregational churches get into the mire of the kind of divisiveness that I think Josh is referring to here. Is it is it a divisive practice? Well, it can be uh, when churches are so democratic <laughs> um, that in the minutia, um, you know, I don't know if canceling a Sunday night service should, is a congregational vote issue. I, I suspect in some churches it could be. Uh, but in some churches, it uh, is not. And, and so we have to figure out, okay, what biblically um, should the congregation be voting on? And I think uh, we have good reason to kind of really limit these things. You could expand them, uh, again, context by context, but probably the best course of action is for membership to vote on, uh, admitting and releasing members. In, including the work of church discipline, you know, removing a member by discipline, but also just admitting members who, who, who are brought before the church as those who want to join, you know, affirming their credible profession of faith, so on and so forth, Re releasing members, not necessarily by discipline, but, you know, members who move away, members who, for whatever reason, transfer, you know, want to move to another church or join another church, those sorts of things. The congregation holds the keys the congregation has the authority. It's it's not the pastors biblically who have the sole authority to do, to do these things. It's the congregation. So we're deciding who's going to be inside and who's going to be outside. That makes sense that we would vote on that. It also makes sense that membership would vote on their own leaders, uh, not just elders but also deacons. The, the you know the two primary church offices here, the two church offices here, um, and then probably 
depending again, context to context, church to church, other church leaders as well, staff members. Uh, so say you have other officers who are not serving in a, in a biblical office of elder or deacon, but they serve as like the church clerk or the church treasurer or the church moderator or something like that. It makes sense that the church would vote on those positions. These are people who are representing them. And, um, you know, these aren't biblical offices, but they are still, um, you know, positions of leadership and positions of representation. And so it makes sense that membership would have the ability to vote on approving or disapproving those who will serve in those roles. I think that's not as biblically necessary as membership approving elders and deacons, but it's probably a matter of prudence. And then the the other thing that we would throw in, I think, and a, and a lot of churches do, I don't think we see this very clearly in Scripture, but it makes sense. It's a prudent thing to do and a wise thing to do, which is for membership to vote to approve its budget and, and changes to that budget, major expenditures. When churches don't employ that aspect of congregationalism, I don't find it personally egregious. I think sharing, you know, at least sharing the budget with them <laughs> is helpful. Um, I would be somewhat suspicious if they could not see the budget at all. Uh, I'm less suspicious if they just aren't voting on it. But I think a, a lot of churches, for instance, uh, my own church, we vote to approve the proposed budget. We have a finance committee, uh, you know, people who are approved of by our membership who serve to work through these sorts of things in conjunction with personnel and, and other operations and staff members. And they put this budget together, operating budget or expenses, missions, all those sorts of things. The congregation sees this proposal and we vote to approve that. Or maybe we want to make changes in the meeting, amendments of some kind, or we ask questions and all that sort of thing. But other churches don't do that. And that's fine. But I just think it's a matter of wisdom. If, if people are giving their money towards the church, that's a kind of representation in the same way that approving leaders is a kind of representation once you get beyond admitting, releasing members, church discipline issues, approving elders and deacons and other church leaders and staff members and the budget, you really get into the weeds of just context-specific things. I cannot say, Josh, it is, a, it, it is wrong or, or it's a bad, you know, your question is, is it a good idea to let members vote on changes proposed in the church, for instance, canceling Sunday night services? It could be. I don't know your church. It might be a good idea to let them vote on that, um, but it, it's not necessarily you know, you're getting into the minutia of um, the distinction between congregationalism and democracy. <laughs> uh, and a church is not a democracy. It's, it's, con it's congregational. And so it's a, that's a little different thing. The democratic idea is that everybody votes on every single thing. W what kind of Kool-Aid are we going to have in the nursery? What color is the carpet going to be? Are we going to have flowers in the eight, you know, in the foyer or not? It's, you know, what color are we going to paint the ceiling? You know, all those sorts of things. Um, and that tends to be more common in smaller churches, and it may make more sense, actually, in smaller churches. But as a church grows, it needs to, I think, adjust to a more biblical congregationalism that makes more sense for some of those minutia issues. Uh, otherwise, the church can begin to kind of bog down and, yes, to answer your question, become pretty divisive. Uh, okay, uh, Brent asks, how does the repentant practically deal with the regret of pain and damage he or she has caused others? How does the repentant, I'm going to say person here, practically deal with the regret of pain and damage he or she has caused others? Uh, this is a big question. 
In fact, it could probably be its own episode. And it's hard to answer specifically. Brent's asking practically how to how to how does this person practically deal with these things without knowing the particular sin or the particular person or the situation involved. So I'm just I'm going to have to speak broadly and say this: someone who is truly repentant will be very patient with the pain and damage that they have caused others. They will not put pressure on them, um, not even pressure to forgive. Hey, remember, Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven or, you know, those sorts of, you know, um, where we turn whatever kind of abuse we've we've doled out into now a further spiritual abuse and saying, uh, to me, that is not a picture of repentance. Repentance is, is someone who is uh, not just truly sorry, uh, but willing to do what it takes to make amends, to give the other person space, to to heal, to be restored, all those sorts of things. And that cannot be accomplished if the if the quote unquote repentant person is constantly pressuring or pushing on them. I I know that repentant people want to be forgiven. You desire forgiveness. You should know you have that fully and freely in Christ. That doesn't mean that that broken people, hurt people, have the same resources that the God of the universe does. And so, passable people are not like the impassable God. And you need to give them space, be patient with them, gentle with them, understanding with them. Part of being repentant is accepting that you've put someone in a position to feel anger about what you've done, or you've put someone in a position to feel a deep grief about what you've done, or even trauma over what you have done. And you give them space to to feel what they feel and not push them to kind of cover that up or to ignore that just to keep a peace or to be spiritual or in any of those sorts of things. Let the Holy Spirit deal with them in those regards. Uh, it could be practically you you need to um, express that you are sorry without any ifs, ands, or buts and be specific about what you're sorry for, not just a kind of vague general apology, but a specificity to it. And then it could be after you're specific about that and you're asked for, uh, for forgiveness, you just give them space. In essence, you kind of put the the ball in their court, so to speak, and they can kick it out if they want, but that's on them, not on you. You give them the the patience and the space that they need to do what they need to do. So uh, that, that's a broad answer to a broad question, Brent. I hope that it was helpful. Uh, that's the last question we have for today. I promised you uh, somewhat of an explanation about our absence. And so I just want to um, sadly let you know that our uh, our last co-host, my friend and former pastor, uh, Nathan Rose, will no longer be on the podcast. He disqualified himself due to a moral failing, uh, which is a, a very deep hurt, not just to his family, but to our church, who um, even uh, this week is um, still working through the process of w- w- what do we do next? Where do we go next? Uh, I'm not going to say too much more about that, especially in in this venue, but I I didn't want to just have him disappear and not give any explanation. I think, you know, you deserve at least to know uh, the basics uh, of why he he will not be with us. And I do ask that you would continue to pray for him and for uh, his family, of course, and that you would pray for Liberty Baptist Church. Uh, It's a great church. We love the gospel. We love people. Uh, We love God's word. And uh, we know that, um, you know, sometimes you got to walk through some dark valleys, but the Lord is good. 
And we ask that you would pray that uh, we would stay unified and stay joyful as well. Should have some important announcements coming up soon. Maybe uh, not next episode, but episodes thereafter as we look for a new sidekick. I know you don't like the solo episodes, <laughs> so I'm just going to do one or two for you in the meantime. Um and I hope you're okay with it, but I will rectify this great injustice uh, against your ears very soon. Uh, if you do enjoy the podcast, solo episode or not, though, I, I would ask that you give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.